Well, it's a joy as always to open God's word and to be back in the book of Hebrews. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue in this wonderful section of application, applying all the wonderful truths that we've learned thus far in the book of Hebrews. You know, music is one of God's great gifts to us in life. I think we can all agree on that. Even those of us who may not play an instrument or enjoy singing, we all enjoy hearing and listening to good music. If you've ever tried to learn to play an instrument, then then you know that it can be a frustrating process, especially in the beginning. I used to teach guitar lessons for several years, primarily to teens and to, to kids, and a common scene would play out over and over again. Very early on in the first couple of lessons, I would begin to teach them some of the most fundamental and basic chords that they would need to know to play guitar. And I would write those out on a diagram to show them where to put their fingers. And then I would help them place their fingers on the guitar to make one of those chords. And once, sometimes it would take a few minutes to get their hand in the right place. And once it was there, I'd say, hold still. And I want you to push hard and strum the guitar. And then I would, I would make the chord myself, and then I would strum the guitar as an example, and then they would get excited because they were excited to hear that sound come out of their guitar, and they would strum their guitar. It didn't sound so good. It didn't sound anything like the way that I played it, in fact, and it, I would have to encourage them that that's, that's okay. It's actually to be expected. And the reason for that is to play any instrument with skill, you have to understand it's far more than just understanding where to put your fingers at the right time and in the right place. There's so many variables that go into playing an instrument well, not only where to put your finger, but exactly how hard to press and how to move your finger as the string vibrates and and, and all of these things that you begin to learn over time with hours and hours of practice. As it turns out, What makes playing an instrument challenging is the fact that it not only matters what you do, but how you do it. And the same thing is true when it comes to drawing near to God. The scriptures teach us that it's essential to the Christian life to draw near to God. We saw this last week. But the the scriptures also teach us that we're not free to draw near to God in just any way that we please. You know, many Christians get frustrated because they hear other Christians talk about their time in the Word and their time in prayer and how encouraged they were in the Word that week and how, how they walked with the Lord in prayer. And that person's listening and they're maybe smiling and nodding along, but inside they're saying to themselves, what's wrong with me? I've been reading the Bible all week this week, and the truth is it's been a struggle. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but half the time I don't even understand what I'm reading and I don't understand how it's supposed to practically affect my life. Something must just be wrong with me. Well, the truth is a couple of things are happening in that case. One is we do have to learn to study the Bible. And so it takes some effort and some skill to learn that. We teach seminars on that and have classes on that. We'd love to help you with that if the practical techniques of studying the Bible are are new to you. We want to help you with those practical things. But there's also another issue that's very critical when we think of how we draw near to God. We not only need to know how to study But we need to ensure that we're drawing near to God in the way that he has prescribed. And that second issue 
is the topic of our passage today in Hebrews. Because we've looked at the means of drawing near to God last week, and now the author turns our attention to the manner in which we draw near. And both are crucial. Understanding the right means, but also the right manner to use those means to effectively draw near to our Savior. Let's read together this passage that we began last time, Ephesians chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. We're going to read the whole section down to verse 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're looking at this great theme, a simple theme, and yet one that ought to motivate us in the Christian life. The riches of Christ's superiority motivate sincere worship, steadfast hope, and intentional fellowship. We saw the structure of these verses last time. It's a simple structure. There are two possessions that every Christian has in this passage, and those two possessions are to motivate three practices. We introduced the first practice last time, and we're going to finish learning about that first practice today. I know I told you we were going to do that and the next practice, but it turns out we're just going to finish this one today. And we'll get to the second one next week. And that's because the, the application section of Hebrews deserves our detailed attention just as thoroughly as the doctrinal section. Now that we have the rich soil of doctrine, we need to really understand where the rubber meets the road. How do we live this out? How should this affect me 24-7 every day? First, we have to remind ourselves of these two possessions. Possession number one was a great confidence. We have confidence to enter into the holy place, to come near to our God. And we do so not on our own merit, but based on the fact that we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. It is what Christ has done that has gained us this continual access to the Father. The second possession was a great priest. Not only do we have access to the holy place because of Christ's work, but we have Christ himself operating as our priest on a daily basis, ministering 24-7 on our behalf, interceding at the right hand of the Father, but also through the Spirit, working in and through us every day, working through the Word to build us up in Christ and to conform us to his image. And so with such gifts as these, we ought to be motivated to act, and specifically to act in three ways. The first practice that we are to put on in response to these possessions is to simply draw near to God. Draw near to God, verse 22. Last week we focused on the, what we'll call the quantity of drawing near, that is the means by which we draw near. We certainly didn't give an exhaustive list of how we draw near, but here are three categories 
that are fairly representative of how we draw near to the Lord. One, we've gotta be committed to prayer. We need to be those who are treasuring his word and we need to be gathering with believers. Through those means, we draw near to God. But beyond that, we need to look not only at the issue of quantity or the means, but quality and the manner. Because actually, the emphasis of this verse lands on a description of the manner in which we draw near. The admonition is there, draw near, let us draw near. And now we learn how to do that. There's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. So there are three qualities, three simple and yet profound qualities that should define the way we draw near to God. And the first quality here, quality number one, is sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Literally, the Greek text says, let us draw near with a true heart. The the emphasis is that this true heart should be a genuine heart, or as we have it here, a sincere heart. And this particular quality of how we draw near really can't be overstated. It reminds us that God's desire for a certain kind of worship has not changed over time. It's not as if God was one way in the Old Testament and now he's a different way in the New Testament. We studied the fact that under the Old Covenant, God routinely made it clear that what he desired was obedience over sacrifice. What God desired was true, uh, full-hearted devotion and sincerity. He wanted the people to draw near to him with the right heart. Jesus reiterates this to the Pharisees as he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15, verses seven to nine. He says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation and on into eternity, God wants your heart. Sincere worship. He wants your affection, your devotion, your love. Another way of saying it is God wants you to desire him for him. To come to God for God. Draw near to him because you want to know him and love him and understand how you might better worship and obey him. As we learned in our our study of Psalm 139, God knows the depths of our heart to a level of precision that blows our minds. He knows exactly the motive of your heart every time you pray, every time you read, every time we gather. He sees it. Clearly, even when we have successfully hidden the motives of our hearts from everyone around us, and in some ways even hidden it from ourselves, God sees it clearly. He sees the heart and he desires the heart. So how do we know if we're drawing near to God with sincerity of heart? Well, to answer that, I wanna do two things. I wanna look at it negatively and then I wanna look at it positively. I think it's helpful for us, for us to understand some of the biblical examples of insincerity. If we have an, a heart that's not true, that's not genuine, what will that look like? What are some insincere ways or motives for drawing near to God? 
Some of these we've mentioned recently, but they're worth reiterating here. The first one is legalism. Legalism is an example of an insincere reason to draw near to God. It's drawing near to God through the use of legitimate means, the means we outlined last time, but doing so in an effort to earn God's continued forgiveness and favor. For example, do you read your Bible or go to church with some sense that that's a peace offering to God for your life of sin that week? We draw near to God insincerely when we think of it this way because we forget the real basis on which we are to draw near to God. It's not ourselves. There's nothing that we can do that makes it more palatable to God for us to draw near to him. We are palatable to him. He loves us because we're covered in the blood of his son. It it makes a, a mockery, really, of the value of what Christ has done for us when we think we can add to that by acts of devotion. So one way to think about it is don't belittle the perfect work of Christ by thinking that you can add further incentive for God to forgive you or accept you or have his favor rest on you. Another example of insincerity that comes closely behind legalism would be unrepentance. Drawing near to God with a heart of unrepentance. One of the reasons that we're often pushed towards legalism and trying to please God with our actions is because of a guilty conscience over sin. But the Bible's clear when we sin, the proper response is to humbly repent of that sin, to expose it to the Lord, trusting that his forgiveness is fully and freely granted in Christ. So drawing near to God to worship him and to walk with him in fellowship while all the while knowingly holding on to sin in our hearts is to draw near to God without sincerity. How can we draw near to God and say, God, I, I, I want to live my life to honor you. I want to fellowship with you, but I'm going to hold on to this thing that I'm convinced you hate. You can't touch that part. This is what Jesus taught against even in the midst of our worship. He says, if you've come to offer a gift to God, but in offering that gift, your conscience pricks you and reminds you that that there's an issue between you and another brother, you need to pause and do something else first. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, that is you've committed some offense against that brother, it needs to be reconciled, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Why? Because we're to come with a clean heart, a heart that's not holding on to sin. It doesn't mean that we're to be morally perfect before we draw near to God. None of us can accomplish that. We sin every day. But there's a difference in the fact that we sin every day and holding on to unrepentant sin, a hard-hearted refusal to repent of sin. So to draw near with sincerity is to draw near to God with a soft heart, a repentant heart, freely confessing and forsaking sin. The third way we often draw near to God without sincerity is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. This is the temptation to draw near to God with a motive of, uh, of, of doing something to elevate yourself in the eyes of men. 
You know, this is particularly a temptation. It has been across church history during times in which it was popular in the culture at large to be a Christian. That actually hasn't been true for the vast majority of the history of the church, but we live in a time period, and in the Bible Belt at least, where at least generally it's seen as a good thing to go to church, to be a Christian, and to have Christian values. And so the temptation then is to do these means of drawing near to God with an eye towards selfish ambition. The temptation is to draw near to God because it's good for business. When you want to read your Bible and pray and attend church because it will cause others to think well of you, that's selfish ambition. I want to build up my reputation in the minds of men. That is to draw near to God for your own ambition. Drawing near to God with sincerity is not about building your platform, your reputation, or your business. Let me ask you, do you personally draw near to God so that others will think well of you? Do you draw near to God so that others will trust you or respect you? Or do you run to the word of God because you genuinely love God and you treasure his words like spiritual gold? To draw near to God because it makes you look good in the community or at work or to your mom or to other Christians with whom you would like to be accepted is to draw near insincerely with a true motive of selfish ambition. All of us need to be cautious of this, but if you're a youth here this morning, let me especially encourage you to consider an example in the youth ministry When you enter into the youth ministry, suddenly you're with a group of people that whom you'd like to accept you, and that acceptance is now based on doing Christian-like things. And so it will be a great temptation to you to want to show up to small group to be able to say, I read my Bible this week, I memorized my verse this week, I prayed this week, I want to do the evangelism class, but it's because you want everyone in the group to accept you and to think well of you. Understand that's a temptation that you need to kill now in your teenage years because that temptation doesn't go away into adulthood. We're tempted to draw near to God to build up ourselves in the minds of those we want to impress. But there's a fourth and final example of drawing near to God insincerely, and we'll call it selfish advantage. Selfish advantage. To draw near to God for selfish advantage is to draw near to God as a means of gaining something else that you desire more highly than God himself. This is very similar to the last example of selfish ambition, but it's broader. And and this is a temptation that all of us have to be careful to guard against. When you come to God, not because you want to know, love, and worship him, but because you want what he can offer you, this is to come to God, to draw near to God, for selfish advantage. Let me give you some examples. This is dedicating yourself to draw near more faithfully because you wanna save your marriage or because you wanna see your kids come to Christ. It's drawing near to God more faithfully because you wanna get out of debt or because you want God to bless your career. It's drawing near to God because you look around and you want the peace and the, perhaps the power and the happiness and the joy that you perceive other Christians to have. 
It's drawing near to God because you really want these other things, some of them good, some of them not. Understand, it's not that God doesn't bless his people. It's not that he doesn't want you to come to him with your requests and with your burdens and with your pains. He actually commands us to bring those things to him. In addition to that, I'm not suggesting that drawing near to God with a genuine heart won't help you be a better spouse or a better parent or a better business person. Nor am I saying that drawing near to God doesn't produce real joy and peace in our hearts. But it comes down to the heart motivation for drawing near to God. What if you draw near to God faithfully, but your spouse never changes? What if you draw near to God faithfully, but your kids end up rejecting the faith? What if you faithfully draw near to God, but your investments fail and come to nothing? Will you stop drawing near? Will you feel that you've gotten a raw deal from God? If so, then you have to ask yourself, why did I draw near in the first place? What was it I really hoped to achieve in all of those spiritual disciplines? You see, God calls us to draw near to him because he is the treasure that we seek. Psalm 73, 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That last line, my portion forever. He's the portion allotted to me. He is all I want. He is my treasure. He is the one I value. We're to draw near to him because we want to know, love, obey, and glorify him. And some of those lesser benefits are added to us along the way but they can never become the real thing that we delight in, in drawing near to the Lord. When we come to God as a means of gaining something we delight in more than him, we ought not to expect that he would ever be so unkind as to give us that thing. James 4, 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. When we come to God as a means of gaining something else, we're essentially asking God to fund our idolatry. And he would never be so unloving as to give us our idols as if delighting in them could ever provide for us what can only be found by delighting in him. Why would God ever be so unkind to fund your idolatry? Let me ask you, What desires most tempt you personally to draw near to God, not for him, but for what he can do for you? Let me ask it again. What desires most tempt you to draw near to God, not for him, but for what he can do for you? Are you drawing near to God to gain some lesser prize? I want you to think for a moment to make it personal of what it, what it makes you feel like when others draw near to you with false motives. When I was in seminary, I worked on campus as a painter and um, I got to know the guys on my crew very well and we became good friends. And as we were driving around one day on campus, moving from job to job, one of my friends shared with me that the day before, an old friend had called him out of the blue that he hadn't talked to in, talked to in several years 
And apparently he and this friend used to be very close and they grew up in church together, but due to moving and college and different things, they had fallen uh, out of relationship. So when my friend saw this, this longtime friend on his caller ID, he was immediately excited. He answered the phone, excited to hear about this friend and what's been going on and share stories about their wives and their kids. And so they made small talk for a few minutes and but after they got caught up, his friend said something like this. Well, the reason I'm calling today is I want to tell you about an exciting opportunity that you can be involved in. And he went on to describe a new network marketing business he was involved in and tried to sell his friend on getting involved. And suddenly on the phone, my, friend, my friend's disposition changed as he realized you didn't call me because you missed me and wanted to talk. You wanted my money. And it stung. But how much more offensive must it be to the God of glory, our creator, our redeemer, who stooped down from heaven to be slayed at the hands of men to save us from our sins against him when we draw near to him because we think his greatest value to us is how he can make our temporal lives more enjoyable. After all that he's done for us, is he not enough to just draw near to him for him, to know him, to love him, to worship him? So that's the negative side, the things we must avoid, and there's many others we could mention, but let's turn now to the positive. How can we be sure on the positive side that we are drawing near to God with sincerity? And how do we obey God's command to cast our cares on him and to bring our requests to him while also making sure we're doing that with a genuine heart? Because as I said, we are commanded to bring our requests to him. So how do we actually ask God to do something in our lives and yet do that in a way that's still genuine? Well, thankfully we have the example, the perfect example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Listen to these two famous prayers that he prayed during his earthly ministry, Luke 22, 41 to 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Or how about earlier in his earthly ministry in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There's a common thread in both of those famous prayers, and they are trust and submission to the will of the Father. Trust and submission to the will of the Father. When we draw near to God with him as our greatest delight, we will bring our request to him while confessing that if our request is out of step with his will, we don't want it. We're bringing this to you, God, but if this is not your will, please don't give it to me because I value your will more than mine. I trust your will 
more than mine. And what we prove in praying that way is a genuine heart that ultimately desires the glory of God more than whatever it is we ask for. We desire his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus prayed. And if our request doesn't accomplish that end, if our request doesn't bring his will on earth as it is in heaven, then we're trusting that his will is better. And we'd rather have that. Now, let's talk for just a moment about two categories of God's will. We've talked about this before, but this will help us in balancing our prayers and our requests of God to make sure we're drawing near to him with sincerity. God's will can be broken down into two categories. There are other theological terms as well that we're not gonna dive into, but this morning specifically, think of God's will in terms of his revealed will and his unrevealed will. This comes to us clearly in Deuteronomy 29, 29, where Moses writes, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Notice there are two aspects of God's will mentioned there, the secret things, that is those things that God's not chosen to tell us, they're known only to God, they are secret to us. But then there's also in the second half of that verse, the revealed things. What is that? That refers to the inspired words in scripture. Those are the things he's chosen to tell us. So we have an aspect of his will that we do not know because he's not given that to us. And we have an aspect of his will that he has given us on the pages of scripture. And so if we want to draw near with sincerity, according to the will of God, it's gonna look like this. We will draw near in humble conformity to God's revealed will and humble submission to his secret will. We'll draw near to God in humble conformity to his revealed will in scripture and in humble submission to the secret things. Essentially, we're saying, God, I'm going to pray requests that I believe after studying the scripture are in keeping with what you've said your will is. But if I'm wrong, if it's an aspect of your secret will that I'm unaware of, then God, I submit to that. That's how we come to God. We make a real request, but we do so submitting it to his will, valuing him over the request, and we pray with sincerity. So let me ask you, do you draw near to God so that he might be conformed to your will or so that you might be conformed to his? It's an easy way to think about sincerely drawing near with sincerity of heart. So that's the first quality. The first quality of our drawing near is sincerity. But there's a second quality that should also define the way we draw near to God. Quality number two is assurance of faith. Assurance of faith, look back at the passage, verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. This is another essential element that should characterize all the means that we use to draw near to God. And notice it's not just draw near to God in faith, but he says full assurance of faith. It's emphatic. Without a doubt, this is steadfast faith, unwavering faith. This is a truth that's found all across the scriptures. James chapter one, verse eight, 
Verses five to eight says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And then later in Hebrews chapter 11, we're gonna read in verse six, these words, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. Drawing near to God in prayer requires genuine faith. Drawing near to God through the study of his word requires genuine faith. And worshiping together side by side as a corporate body requires genuine faith. But faith in what exactly? Full assurance of faith in what? There's so much talk in Christianity today about praying with faith. It's a popular topic. If you turn on the TV and listen to whatever preacher comes up, they're probably talking about praying with faith. We're told by some that to pray with faith means that we're to claim that God has already given us what we've asked for. And this is stated as a blanket promise. Doesn't really matter what you ask for, as long as you claim it in faith, and believe it's already been done, it will be yours, they say. And if God happens to not give it to you, it's just an evidence that you didn't really have faith. Because if you had had faith, then you would have gotten it. But that's not at all what Christ meant when he said these words that are often abused from John 14, verses 13 to 15. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Leon Morris says this about that quote. This does not mean simply using the name as a formula, the name of Jesus. It means that prayer is to be in accordance with all that that name stands for. It is prayer proceeding from faith in Christ prayer that gives expression to oneness with Christ, prayer that seeks to glorify Christ, and the purpose of it all is the glory of God. This call to pray with full assurance of faith is not faith centered in assurance that you will get exactly what you ask for every time and exactly the way you ask for it. This is assurance of faith in the person of Christ. It's assurance of faith in God himself. Don't forget where we are in Hebrews. Don't forget the context of all that's come before. How much time have we spent laboring diligently to understand the magnitude of Christ, the superiority of Christ, and now we're told to come and draw near to him with full assurance of faith. Faith in what? Faith that he is all that we've learned him to be, that he really is that superior Christ, that God is who he's revealed himself to be on the pages of scripture, and therefore he will do what he has said he will do. This is what it is to draw near with full assurance of faith. When we pray with a sincere heart, it leads us to pray in conformity with God's will, which gives us assurance that God will act in accordance with his nature and accomplish the things that he's revealed to be his will. 
These two go together, sincerity and faith. We have faith that God really is powerful. He really is holy. He really is perfect in goodness and that he will never fail to be these things. So we draw near bringing our requests with full assurance of faith in the God to whom we pray. You know, when our circumstances stretch us, when we're grieving, when we're pained, we can all be tempted to question how it is that our circumstances sync well with how God's revealed himself to be in scripture. Our flesh tempts us to think things like, if God is good, then why is this happening to me? If God is just, why doesn't he just do something to punish the wicked? If God loves me, why is he allowing me to experience such heartache and such grief and such pain? And how can God possibly bring something good out of this? Our flesh tempts us to think all sorts of things. And it's in those moments, in those trying circumstances, that we must preach to ourselves the truth instead of listening to ourselves and thereby fan into flame faith, holding fast with an unwavering faith that God is who he says he is. And he will not fail to do what he says he will do. It doesn't matter how dark the clouds are surrounding me. I will trust the heart and character of my God because I come to him with full assurance of faith that this is nothing for him. It is not hard for him to bring good out of even this. He will not fail to be just. He will not fail to be holy. He will not fail to be true to his name. This is the kind of faith in the character of God that leads you to pray even in your hardest times, God, you have been so good to me been so good to me, and I know that you will not fail me now. Strengthen my weary faith, strengthen my weak and feeble knees, and help me to stand for the glory of your name. This is what it is to pray, to read, to worship with full assurance of faith. It's to come trusting that the character of God is unwavering. And when we do that, it leads us to pray with sincerity not my will, God, but yours be done. And so it is, we're to draw near with sincerity of heart and also assurance of faith. But there's a third quality that should define our drawing near, quality number three, we'll call it remembering our condition. Remembering our condition. We're to draw near while remembering our condition. This is the end of verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let me give you an encouragement this morning. Not one of us draws near perfectly to God. Not one of us perfectly meets the standard that I just laid out, including myself. So if you've heard my descriptions of how we're to draw near with sincerity and with fullness of faith and your, your, your knees are shaking now or you're downcast and you're weary, understand, take heart because there's more to the story. This third quality reminds us that as we seek to draw near with sincerity and with full assurance of faith, we're also to do so remembering why it is 
that we're able to come near in the first place. We do it remembering the work of redemption, the washing of regeneration that God has already done to us. That's what's being described here when he says, having hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These are are words and, and descriptions that bring to mind the spiritual washing of regeneration that's already happened in the life of every Christian. This is, for example, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Or how about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. How about Ephesians 5? In exemplifying to husbands how they ought to love their wives, listen to the description of the example that's set for these husbands and what Christ has done for his church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. How? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Understand if you're in Christ this morning, When you come to pray, when you come to study the word, when you come to gather, you need to remind yourself that you do so on the basis of the fact that God has washed you clean through the process of regeneration and made you new. And only on that basis do you do these things. It puts the wind in our sails to draw near to worship and to enjoy God. Think about it. if, if we had not been thoroughly washed of all our sins, past, present, and future, then every time we drew near to God, it would only be to ask for forgiveness, right? Because that, that would be at the top, I'm still not forgiven. But because he has washed us clean and made us new, it actually frees us up to draw near to God, to worship him and to love him and to know him and to to read his word so that we might know how to obey him. It lets us come to God and have relationship with God because it's on the basis of the washing of regeneration. And so it is, if you wanna draw near with a sincere heart, if you wanna draw near with full assurance of faith, just remind yourself, I can do this because I was washed, because I was justified. I was set apart by the grace of God. And this reminds us that Christ is the key to it all. Every single one of these applications is going to come back to Christ. All three practices, I don't wanna steal my own thunder, so we're not gonna look at it today, but as we look at each of those practices, what you'll see is a direct admonition and then an explanation that it's because of Christ you can do that. Another admonition, because of Christ. Another admonition, because of Christ. 
So when you seek to draw near to God, as, as imperfect as it is, draw near. Know that you're welcomed on the basis of the washing of re- regeneration by the work of God. Keep drawing near. And take heart in this. We don't have time to dive into this, but as you draw near, when you don't get it right, when you pray and your prayers are inadequate, but you just don't know it, the Son's interceding for you perfectly. And Romans tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us. And so it's as if we pray these mangled prayers with our best efforts and the Spirit rounds out all the rough edges and presents them in the way that they ought to be. So even in our imperfection, God continues to be perfect, to do what is right. Understand that in the midst of your darkest days, the answer is still the same, draw near, run to God. Remember James chapter four, verses five to 10. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So even if you realize you've been doing it all wrong, you've been coming to Christ and maybe there's unrepentant sin and the Lord is convicting you and he's humbling you, he says, humble yourself and draw near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so it is, we have the full package. To draw near in the right way is to draw near with sincerity of heart, assurance of faith, while considering our condition in Christ. But I want us to think about an example of what does it look like in real time, practically, to draw near to God in the right way. And so as we move our way towards a close, I want to leave you with one powerful example in the scriptures of what it looks like to draw near to God with the right heart. And it comes to us from an occasion in scripture when the righteous king Hezekiah found himself facing the very real threats of the Assyrian army. The Assyrians, just to put some context to this, they were the army of the day at that time. They were conquering nation after nation after nation. It would would be as if this military had advanced and, and they had conquered Canada and they had conquered Mexico and maybe they had begun to conquer parts of the United States and we've all grouped into some, some middle state, call it Texas, and we're living here <laughs> and we're all bunkered in and here comes the army of the day. And, and humanly speaking, there really seems to be no way out of this. Well, we, we, we don't have the military might to defeat such an army. And in an attempt to intimidate Hezekiah, the king of of the Assyrians sends a letter to them to let them know you're next. And it's futile to try and avoid this. In 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 10 to 13, here's the letter the king of Assyria sends. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, 
You've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezif and the sons of Eden who were in Telazar? Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim and of Hina and of Iva? Now, I don't know about you, but this is, this is something that constitutes as a, an extreme trial, wouldn't you say? You're the king of a, of a pretty small nation, humanly speaking, and the bad boy king who's taking over everyone sends you this letter to say, by the way, we're coming, and don't think that your God will protect you because none of the gods of the other nations have protected them. Don't be foolish, just surrender. So what should he do in a moment like this? He could empty the treasury and offer them a bribe, or he could empty the treasury and hire another army to come and go to battle with him. Other kings had done so. He could search the royal library for great books on strategies of war when you're outnumbered. Could gather his advisors and counselors for an emergency board meeting to say, guys, what do we do? But not only what should he do, but what should he think about God in a moment like this? After all, isn't Israel the nation that God said that he would bless? At this time, aren't they under the old covenant and in the land? Hasn't he sought to be a righteous king, a, a true follower of God, when so many other kings before him had not been righteous, and yet he has sought to seek God with a whole heart? Should he get angry with God and start to vent his frustrations at the injustice of it all? Should he allow his faith to be shaken in God's ability to rescue him? Or should he question God's goodness for even allowing such an attack on his people? Well, Hezekiah chooses to do and to think the right way in such a situation. He chooses to draw near to God, believing that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. 2 Kings 19, verses 14 to 19. This is Hezekiah's response to the letter after he reads it. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your ears, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they've destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Hezekiah knew in that moment that what he needed the most was to draw near to God. And while it wouldn't have been wrong for Hezekiah to call the prophet Isaiah and to ask for counsel or his advisors, he understood the best and first thing that I must do is go to God and lay out this request before him and let him see as it were. 
Not only that, he doesn't draw near to God. Notice he doesn't draw near to God and ask for requests that center on him and the glory of his name, but he says, God, you have made this promise to us and you are the one true God, so show the nations who you are. You see, his, his desire was to come to God for God, for the glory of God and not for himself. And so he confesses, my faith is not shaken. You are the God of all gods. And it's true that all those other nations and their idols have failed them, but it's because they were no gods at all. But you are the creator of heaven and earth. Understand Christian, you and I have been granted greater access to God than even Hezekiah. Where did he go when he had to bring his request to God? He ran to the temple, to to the physical place on the planet where at that time God was manifesting his presence. But where has the author of Hebrews said, we've been invited to go? To the most holy place of heaven. God says, Christian, draw near to me where I am found. Draw near to me in the holy place. You're invited to come come and when you come lay out your requests with full sincerity of heart coming to me for me for my glory and come with full assurance of faith that I will be who I've said I will be and as you trust in me just watch what I do to prove my glory to honor my name We have the work of God throughout scripture to prove that he is who he says he is. And we have the work of God even in our own individual lives as he graciously daily cares for us. How many times has God answered your prayer, Christian? And how quickly do we forget his goodness? Let me ask you, does all this sound foreign to you this morning? Have you stumbled into church today because You thought it'd be a good idea, a respectable thing to do? Or have you come out of an overflow of your love for Christ, desire to serve him and his people and to know him more? Let me just tell you, if all this sounds foreign to you and you're wondering what in the world I'm talking about, let me ask you, have you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Have you come to understand that you're a sinner and that your sin separates you from a holy God? Have you come to understand that Jesus Christ is God's only son, eternal God who became a man, took on humanity to live a perfect life, and he offered that life on the cross to pay for the sacrifice for sin and rose again on the third day, proving that sacrifice had been accepted? Understand the Bible calls all men everywhere to repent, including you. If you'll repent of your sins, Humble yourself before a holy God and believe that Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is your only hope of forgiveness. The Bible says you will be saved. And you'll join the group of us who are relishing the words we're reading today and the truth that we've been invited to draw near to God with constant access all day, every day. Let me encourage you, if you're confused about these things, not to leave here confused, come talk to me, talk to anyone around you, and we will help you to understand the gospel more clearly. But as we close this morning, let me just leave us with two points of application. They're drawn right out of the 
passage we studied last week and the passage today. Number one, evaluate the quantity of drawing near to God in your life. If you look at your life honestly, can you say that you're characterized by drawing near to God? What's your prayer life like, honestly? Do you pray all throughout the day without ceasing? Are you devoted to prayer, as the scriptures call us to be? Do you treasure the word of God? Is the word of God honestly your meditation throughout the day? When you wonder what to do or how to live is your first thought, what does the Bible say? And are you committed to drawing near to God with other believers? Are you in the lives of other believers, living life, a shared life together, a fellowship as God has called us to do? Let me ask you, what most often keeps you from drawing near to God? And what could you change today that would help motivate you to draw near to God with eagerness in the way he calls us to in this passage. Think on those things this week. And secondly, evaluate the quality of drawing near to God in your life. Consider the issue of sincerity. Do you consistently draw near to God for God himself or for some ulterior motive? And one way to check that is to evaluate how you respond when God doesn't answer your prayers in the way you want. Do you grow angry with God? Do you withdraw from God? Or do you give him glory and declare that his ways are better and that even when you don't understand, you'll submit to him? Consider the assurance of your faith. Do you come to God in the word and in prayer in our corporate gathering with deep assurance that he really is who he says he is and he really will do what he says he will do? Do you believe the best of God? Do you believe the best of his character when you don't understand? Do you bring your request with thanksgiving, as Paul told the Philippians, understanding that even though you may be lacking in this area that you're coming to ask for, it's in the context of the goodness of God. There's much to be thankful for. And thirdly, consider the way your spiritual condition should affect the way you draw near to God. When you draw near to God, do you do so with confidence because you understand it's by his grace that you're welcome there because of the blood of Christ? Or do you come with trepidation as if perhaps God's changed his mind about you since you were last there in prayer? Come to God as a child coming before a loving father who longs for you to come and who welcomes you with open arms. It's true that we should come to God reverently he is holy, but we should also come to him freely and with confidence. And if the Spirit's convicting you heavily this morning because you haven't been drawing near with the, with the eagerness you should, and you haven't been drawing near with sincerity and with full assurance of faith, let me encourage you, draw near. That's the answer to what you do. Draw near. Come to him. He already knows you're not hiding that from him. Just come. Tell him what he already knows. Confess it and keep drawing near. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that you, you beckon us to come. You give us instruction on how we ought to come and how we ought to think about seeking you. But even when we do it imperfectly, which is far too often,
You cover it with grace. Still, we're welcome. God, help us to take advantage of the rich treasure that we have in Christ, to know him, to love him, to serve him, to draw near to him. We ask all of this in his precious name. Amen.